Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Today, we're going to go back to the 1950s. There's a pervasive idea that the 50s were the decade of consumerist conformism, a time when the American dream was sacred, the conventional American family and its boundless appetite for wealth revered as a kind of utopian ideal. The 1950s in Hollywood were a time of transition as the studios were scrambling to deal with at least three threats. The rise of television, the fall of vertical integration as the studios had been court-ordered to dissolve their exhibition interests at the end of the 1940s, and the communist scare as the House Un-American Activities Committee's hearings attempted to force Hollywood's workers to turn against one another or face the threat of the blacklist. In this climate, the Hollywood censors shifted their focus when it came to policing the content of movies. Earlier, depictions of extramarital sex and the general implication of delinquency were most carefully patrolled. Now, the studios were uh, encouraged to wipe anything from their films, which could be perceived as un- or anti-American. And yet, think about all of the big movies of the 1950s featuring big movie stars, which suggest, directly or indirectly, that there's a cost to repression, and that there's got to be more worth having than wealth and well-behaved heirs worth passing that wealth on to. Think about the movies of Douglas Sirk, Imitation of Life and Written on the Wind, soap operas, masking social critique. Think about the three movies made by James Dean before his untimely death in the middle of the decade. Think about a number of the movies we've talked about on this podcast, from Hollywood auto-critiques like A Star is Born and The Bad and the Beautiful, to a broad canvas, sick soul of the small town melodrama like Picnic. And then there's a movie whose making and legacy we're going to talk about today, a movie which Charlie Chaplin, a year away from his exile from the United States, would call the greatest movie ever made about America, George Stevens's A Place in the Sun. A Place in the Sun was Hollywood's second adaptation of Theodore Dreiser's An American Tragedy, and though Stevens was forced to water down the source material in accordance with the censorship code, the film's indictment of the madness-inducing potential of American capitalism comes through loud and clear. Perhaps Stevens was able to get away with more because the movie is so successfully disguised as a romantic vehicle for its two stars, Elizabeth Taylor and Montgomery Clift whose recurring professional partnership and very deep, long-term personal friendship is the subject of our story today. Liz Taylor was, of course, arguably the greatest female star of the 20th century, on screen or off. Montgomery Clift was an actor who perhaps could have created an even more impressive body of work and a more indelible legend had he not died at the age of 45, at the end of what is often termed Hollywood's slowest suicide. Clift, called Monty, was the first American actor to bring to movies the teachings of the actor's studio and what became known, accurately or otherwise, as The Method. 
He preceded Marlon Brando and James Dean, who both claimed to be in Monty's debt when it came to their own screen personas and technique. He was the first male Hollywood star whose entire persona was about his unstable identity. A revolutionary in the package of a heartthrob, he made eight films in eight years. Shooting the ninth film, Raintree County, he got into a terrible car accident, which destroyed his face. Monty was never the same after that, and as he withdrew further into anxiety and drug addiction, Liz Taylor remained his loyal friend, striving until the end to pull Monty back from the brink. It wasn't like she had nothing better to do. Liz's friendship with Monty spanned and survived her first five marriages and countless health problems and tabloid scandals. In some sense, her constant support of Monty was just a repaying of a gift. Seemingly born a star, it wasn't until working with Montgomery Clift that Elizabeth Taylor became an actress. Join us, won't you, as we explore the friendship between Elizabeth Taylor and Montgomery Clift. Be kind to your mind with guided meditations from the Meditation for Women podcast. Your mental health benefits from sleeping better, releasing anxiety, and gaining clarity, all of which are benefits of meditation. And since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, give yourself the gift of meditations. All you have to do is press play and close your eyes. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Liz Taylor had been working since she was six, famous since she was 10, best known in the 1940s as the star of National Velvet, and for having written a book about her relationship with her dog. By 1949, when she was 17, in Hollywood, Liz was mostly admired for having passed through puberty without going any sort of noticeable awkward phase. She could wear a dress and she photographed well in color, but nobody took her seriously. Her home studio, MGM, was hoping to change that. The track record of transition from kitty attraction to adult star slash sex symbol wasn't great. In fact, Fox had just mangled it with Shirley Temple. Complicating matters was the fact that Liz knew she looked like a grown woman, but she still felt like a child. And then a Life magazine photographer offered an invaluable piece of direction. You have bosoms, he said. Stick them out. She did. And from that point on, no one would look at Elizabeth Taylor and see a child. She'd been effectively molded and costumed as an adult beauty, but MGM still had to give her an adult role to play. First, they had her play the role of an eligible bachelorette, setting her up off-screen on dates. And that was how she ended up getting picked up in a limo by a reluctant Montgomery Clift. In 1949, 29-year-old Monty was the newest, hottest young male actor in town. After working on stage with the Lent family and studying at the first incarnation of the actor's studio had led to a couple of triumphs on Broadway, he had shot three films, Red River, The Search, and The Heiress, and every director and producer in town wanted to work with him. But Monty was grossed out by the business part of the film business. He complained, I'm not called an actor out there, I'm called a hot property. And a property's only good if it makes money. A property's lousy if it loses money at the box office. He likened long-term talent contracts to slavery and refused to sign one for years. 
he finally capitulated to a three-picture deal at Paramount on the condition that he would have script approval and would only work with three directors, Billy Wilder, George Stevens, and Norman Krasna. Not that he would necessarily let any of them actually direct him. On every set, he got his acting coach, a Russian group theater vet named Mira Rostova, on the payroll. She and Monty would hole up together in his trailer working on lines, and she'd stand behind the camera and either nod or shake her head after every take to let her pupil know whether or not he nailed it. Monty's life was then, and would be later, guided by the women he was close to. When Billy Wilder wrote Sunset Boulevard with Monty in mind, after initially evincing enthusiasm, Monty ultimately turned the part down— He claimed he didn't think he could realistically portray a relationship with an older woman, which was a little bit weird because at the time, Monty was in the midst of a very long-term relationship with Libby Holman, a wealthy heiress-slash-torch singer who enabled Monty's increasing alcoholism and pill addiction and treated Monty as some combination between a gigolo and a son. It seems likely that he actually turned down the part because it would have hit too close to home, and playing a role so closely aligned with his personal life might have opened the door to exploring his greatest conflict. Montgomery Clift loved women, admired them, felt himself drawn to female beauty, and formed most of his closest, longest-lasting emotional relationships with his female friends. But he was primarily sexually attracted to men. He didn't want to be. Very few men who were attracted to men were out and proud in 1949, But Monty Clift was particularly torn. He wanted to be the kind of guy who could marry a beautiful woman and have a family, but he couldn't. He was also too filled with shame to acknowledge himself as a homosexual and commit to pursuing lasting romantic relationships with men, even on the down low. This fundamental inability to conform to either the mainstream convention or a secret life would become a major psychic and emotional drain for Clift. It might also have fueled his screen presence, which was always multiple things at once, always conflicted, always equal parts, beauty, and edge. Monty avoided playing most of Hollywood's games, but when his film The Heiress was having its Hollywood premiere in the fall of 1949, he couldn't get out of making an appearance under Paramount's terms. The studio wanted Monty to take Taylor as his date to drum up advance excitement about their upcoming pairing in George Stevens' A Place in the Sun. Monty protested. He hadn't gotten to know Taylor yet, and he had absolutely no interest in her. He finally gave in when Paramount agreed to allow Mira to tag along. But it turned out that Monty didn't need his acting coach to play security blanket that night, because Liz Taylor was great company. She swore like a sailor and enthusiastically agreed with Monty that the limo should stop at a hamburger stand so that they could fuel up on Greece on the way to the premiere. They smiled for the camera on the red carpet, but once they were in their seats, as the film rolled, Monty gripped Liz's hand and slunk down into his seat. I'm so awful, Bessie May. He kept saying. I'm so awful. When it was finally over, amidst the crowd standing in ovation, Monty whispered, Let's get out of here, Bessie May. And dragged her back to the limo. As they were driving away, she asked, Why do you keep calling me Bessie May? Monty said, The whole world knows you as Elizabeth Taylor. Only I call you Bessie May. The bond Monty and Liz formed at that premiere boded well for their work together on A Place in the Sun. 
Monty played George Eastman. The Eastman family is an American dynasty, but George comes from a broke wing. His mother, a missionary, chose God over capital. George's uncle takes pity on the boy and gives him a job on the floor of his garment factory. George immediately starts romancing a sweet, plain, sad co-worker played by Shelley Winters while admiring from afar a beautiful socialite, Angela Vickers, played by Liz Taylor. Eventually, George starts to rise the corporate ladder, and Angela falls in love with him. But not before he gets dumpy Shelley Winters pregnant. Cue the American tragedy. Because of the anti-communist panic, Stevens had to make it seem like the film was criticizing uncontrollable lust and not American society. But in execution, the former is clearly a placeholder for the latter. With his camera and his editing, Stevens submerges the viewer into a dream state. All the better to reveal the American dream as a nightmare. He takes full advantage of the morally ambiguous beauty of his two leads. Both of them were so magnetic, in a way that didn't reveal their inner character so much as obscure it. You could take one look at either and fall in love without stopping to think if this person was inherently good or inherently bad. Monty was the first person Elizabeth Taylor met who really took acting seriously as an intellectual pursuit. He told her to remember that her character is always supremely confident. It's never occurred to her that there could be a man who she couldn't possess, a relationship in which she wouldn't have the upper hand. Before, during, and after the shoot, the fan press was full of news about the real-life romance between Monty and Liz. But history can't seem to decide if the two were actually, at any point, physically intimate. Some historians insist that while Monty loved Liz, he was strictly gay when it came to sex. Others say he was functionally bisexual. Monty's most extensive biographer, Patricia Bosworth, claims that if Monty was ever legitimately attracted to a woman, it was to Liz. She claimed they were spotted necking on the Paramount lot. But Liz herself later said that from the first, she understood that Monty should be with a man and not a woman. That might have been true. Or maybe, in hindsight, she felt the need to protect the young lady she had once been, who had sent Monty countless love letters and reportedly, repeatedly begged him to marry her. After filming, Monty went on a trip to Paris with Kevin McCarthy and his wife, Augusta. Monty hadn't even really drank before 1949, but now his friends noticed that not only was he drinking heavily, but he traveled with a wide assortment of pills. Red pills, yellow pills, uppers, downers, allergy pills. He seemed to take them indiscriminately, washing them down with wine without checking to see which ones he grabbed or in what dose. Monty started working on a screenplay with McCarthy, an oddity at the time for two working actors, but their work was frequently interrupted by calls from Liz, who was essentially passive-aggressively begging Monty to stop her from marrying Nikki Hilton. Monty would go as far as to warn her that Nikki was maybe not the best fit for her, but he wouldn't go so far as to propose to Liz himself. So the marriage went through in May 1950, but was over soon enough. Liz had no idea how to do anything off of a movie set when she married Nikki Hilton at age 18. No idea how to take care of herself, let alone run a household for the heir to a major American fortune. When they were divorced after seven months of marriage, Liz moved into the Plaza Hotel in New York. 
She says she asked for the daily rate for the enormous suite she was taken and was told, Not at all, Miss Taylor. It's with the compliments of the house. Oh, how nice, she thought, and settled in. When she told the hotel it was time for her to check out, they sent up a bill for $2,500. Apparently, the compliments of the house offer had only been good for four days, and Liz had been there for six weeks. Monty and Roddy McDowell came to help her pack. They ordered martinis up to the room, and the next thing Liz knew, there were crushed flower petals all over the suite. Every painting on the walls had been turned upside down, and all of the towels, and the martini carafe, and the shower nozzle had ended up in her suitcase. Whoops. Just as he had acted as an informal acting coach on the set of A Place in the Sun, in New York, Monty helped Liz learn how to act, as in how to behave, without her mom or maids or drivers or Hollywood minders around to rely on. She was in an unusual position for a girl her age, to say the least. She'd never been by herself, never carried cash in her purse, never taken an idle walk in her whole life. She'd also financially supported her whole family from the age of 10. When she was in New York, Liz would often join Monty at his favorite neighborhood Italian joint, where one night they closed the place down and then stayed until 3 a.m. helping the owner paint the dining room. Or else she'd join McCarthy and the rest of Monty's regular crew at his favorite bar, Gregory's on Lexon 54th. It was a no-frills place where Monty would hold court in a booth or sit by himself at the bar, talking to the barkeep about sports and watching the parade of humanity flowing in and out of the doors. College kids, pimps divorcees, career alcoholics. In this environment, Liz, who always wore a full face of makeup, definitely stood out. After all, she was the most beautiful woman in the world. But she tried to fit in, chain-smoking and swearing up a storm. Actress Diana Lynn would describe Liz as iridescent. She was so damn sexy and flirtatious, she made every man want to unzip his fly and stick it in her, Lynn said. Monty wasn't immune to her charms. He loved Liz so much, he wished he could love her more. Or rather, love her in the way that every straight man in the world seemed desperate to. But again, she wanted him to marry her. And again, he couldn't do it. Around this time, Monty started seeking help for the two things that caused him the most anxiety. His drinking and his desire for men. First, he saw a doctor who put him into detox. Then he started seeing a psychoanalyst, Dr. William Silverberg. Monty came to rely on Silverberg's analysis, but he also increased his drinking to deal with the emotional stuff that was coming up in their sessions. And by some accounts, Monty started seeking out women to have sex with, as well as men. By some accounts, he was honestly confused as to his sexual identity. I don't understand it, he reportedly said. I love men in bed, but I really love women. By other accounts, he was so loaded every night that whomever he was hanging out with would become saddled with the responsibility of putting him to bed, not taking him to bed. And still there were rumors that his equal opportunity promiscuity stemmed from physical insecurity. Rumors stoked by Kenneth Anger, who referred to Monty in the first edition of Hollywood Babylon as Princess Tiny Meat. Thank you. 
After divorcing Nikki Hilton, Liz became engaged to British actor Michael Wilding, who was 20 years her senior. She and Wilding and Monty would often go out as a threesome, with Monty and her fiancé competing for Liz's affections. After the pair were married, Monty fell into a depression, certain he was destined to spend the rest of his life alone. When Liz had her first baby, Monty showered it with gifts, to the point that their mutual friends would joke that maybe the baby was actually Monty's. To which Monty responded, I wish. He started spending more time with his personal Norma Desmond, Libby Holman, essentially living with her at her country home. Libby, like Monty, was a pretty major pill popper. Both had insomnia, and both had the kind of tolerance that would take more than a handful of pills to crack. When a friend offered to remodel Monty's Manhattan duplex, Monty requested mirrors all over because he loved catching glimpses of his own beauty, but he also wanted a 14-foot-long medicine cabinet. That was crazy, but Monty had enough medicine to fill it up. He started frequently hallucinating and blacking out. At a friend's house, he once grilled a steak in the fireplace, then carved it on a white shag rug and served it to guests as if that was just cooking. He went to stay in Beverly Hills with Liz when she was very pregnant with her second child. Neither of them knew how to keep house, and the place was a mess. There was nothing in the fridge except some dried-out butter and a couple pieces of ham, but the coffee table was piled with magazines, all of them featuring Monty or Liz or both on the cover. Liz developed a policy for dealing with Monty's drunken antics and cries for attention. She'd ignore them, so he stubbed out his lit cigarette and his untouched filet mignon at a dinner party. Ignore it. But at the same time, she needed him to indulge her every emotional whim. By 1955, her marriage to Michael Wilding was falling apart. There were rumors, most of them spread by Hedda Hopper, that Wilding was using Liz as a beard to cover up his affairs with actors like Stuart Granger. Both Liz and Michael had taken to confiding their marital angst to Monty. Monty was naturally more sympathetic to the girl he still called Bessie May. Knowing Monty was in terrible debt, Liz convinced him to star with her in Raintree County, an MGM Technicolor extravaganza conceived as the romantic historical epic in the Gone with the Wind mold. It was budgeted at $5 million, which would have made it the most expensive movie shot solely in America to that time. Maybe it was the high projected cost of the picture, or maybe it was something else. But MGM's president, Dory Sherry, had a premonition, and he did something he had never done before. He took out a $500,000 insurance policy on the film. Raintree County shot interiors first in Hollywood and then prepared to move to Kentucky for exterior shooting. The cast and crew were to fly out on a Sunday, and on Saturday night, May 12, 1956, Liz threw a dinner party. Monty hadn't wanted to come. Liz had called him at regular intervals all afternoon, begging him to attend. And he kept saying, no, no, no. He was tired. Literally, he wanted to go to sleep early. But he was also exhausted by his confidant relationship with Liz and Michael Wilding. Nevertheless, finally Liz wore Monty down. He had been so determined to not go out that night that he had given his chauffeur the night off. So he drove his own rented car to the Wilding Mansion in Benedict Canyon, several corkscrew turns off of Mulholland. It was a weird scene. 
The guest of honor, a supposedly hip young priest, didn't even show up. The guests included Monty's best friend, Kevin McCarthy, who was then starring in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Rock Hudson and Roddy McDowell, two of Liz's gay best friends, and her husband, Wilding, who spent the whole night laying on the couch to soothe his bad back. The rosé was warm, and Monty drank at most a glass. He excused himself to leave early and asked McCarthy to drive in front of him down the hill so Monty wouldn't get lost. Twenty minutes after they left, Kevin came back. He pounded on the front door of Liz's house, screaming, Monty's been in an accident. I think he's dead. A few minutes earlier, Kevin had been driving down the canyon, ahead of Monty. McCarthy first noticed that the lights from Monty's car were no longer in his rear view, and then he heard a crash. The crash was so loud that, as legend has it, the Taylor Wilding dinner party heard it too. Kevin raced back and found Monty's car crumpled up against a telephone pole. Not seeing the driver at first, Kevin assumed he'd been thrown. And then he saw Monty Clift, crumbled under the dashboard of his car, a pool of blood and ripped flesh where his gorgeous face was supposed to be. McCarthy and Wilding tried to keep Liz from running to the scene, but they couldn't stop her. She cradled her bloody friend in her arms. He was alive, and he gestured to his neck. Liz opened up his mouth and realized his front teeth had been knocked out, and they were now stuck in his throat. So Liz stuck her fingers through his mouth, reached all the way down, and pulled out the loose teeth, on which Monty otherwise would have choked to death. Liz went with Monty in the ambulance. When they got to the hospital, the ambulance driver told Liz it would be $10 for the ride. Liz was incensed. How dare they ask her for cash at a time like this? Of course she didn't have any. She searched Monty's pockets, which were also empty. The driver refused to carry Monty into the hospital unless he got his $10. So Liz threw her diamond ring at the driver, a ring that was worth roughly $50,000. But he wouldn't take it. He wanted $10. Luckily, Wilding and Roddy McDowell and a number of other party guests were right behind the ambulance, and they had cash. It wasn't until Monty was safely inside the hospital that Liz realized she was covered in his blood, and she became hysterical. Every bone in Monty's face had been smashed. His nose was broken, his jaw was crushed. Production was shut down while Monty recovered. His jaw was wired shut, and he would illicitly slip martinis out of paper cups through a straw. All of the actors on Raintree County agreed to take a pay cut while the film was delayed, except for Agnes Moorhead. The crew all chipped in to buy the actor flowers. They loved him, because he was like a walking pharmacy. Monty was determined to finish the movie, although that determination might have come from pressure from his agents in the studio, who had already spent so much money on Raintree County that it didn't make sense to replace him. And anyway, if they had tried, Liz would have quit. She convinced MGM that if Monty couldn't go back to work, it would kill him. So two months later, Raintree County resumed shooting in Kentucky, Monty had had his teeth replaced, his busted lips sewn up. His jaw was still wired and even making snapping sounds when he moved it, and it hurt to eat, so he drank concoctions of milk and raw eggs. Technically, he was getting better, but he didn't look the same. 
A nerve had been severed in his face, and the left side of it was frozen. One of his friends said simply, hauntingly, that Monty looked stuffed. He was in constant pain and often gave himself codeine injections in his dressing room, which led to rumors that he was a heroin junkie. He had insomnia and nightmares and would sometimes sleepwalk into the street naked. And he was drinking more than ever. Liz would have dinner parties at her rented house, which on a good night would devolve into cheerful food fights. On other nights, at some point in the evening, Monty would hit his pickled peak and simply melt off his chair and onto the floor. As per her policy, Liz insisted that everyone just ignore it, and the party would go on around him as he slept. For the most part, his drinking was ignored on set, too, until one day near the end of Raintree when Monty got the giggles and kept wrecking takes of a scene with Ava Marie Saint. Eventually she got fed up and ran off the set crying, demanding to talk to her agent. The head of MGM happened to be on set that day. He approached Monty and said sternly, Monty, I hear you've been drinking. What a joke. It was way too late for a slap on the wrists. Monty thought Raintree County was a bloated bore, and he wasn't wrong, but he joked that it would be a huge hit because everybody would want to come and gawk at him to try and separate out the beautiful before from the wretched after. The film is not available in a U.S. DVD, and I watched it on a blurry dishwater VHS, which might not offer the best evidence. But it seems like director Edward Dimitrik did a pretty good job of lighting and framing Clift to minimize the horror. Most of the Kentucky exteriors were shot with Monty in profile. Only the right side of his face turned to the camera. But occasionally, you see Monty's new face head on. And the left side just looks vaguely, unplaceably, uncannily off. Things didn't exactly get better for Montgomery Clift. After the Raintree shoot, he temporarily moved into a house in Brentwood and installed blackout curtains. Marlon Brando visited and tried to convince him to get into AA. Monty told Brando that he'd be fine, drinking double martinis all the while. But he wasn't fine, and it wasn't just because of the drinking. When Monty would go out in Hollywood, people who he'd known for years didn't recognize him, or else they took a look at his new face and recoiled in horror. He continued to work to the extent that he could, He made a third film with Liz suddenly last summer, but he was habitually late on set and couldn't remember his lines. Liz fought to make sure he wasn't fired. Elia Kazan cast him in Wild River. He appeared opposite Marilyn Monroe in her last film, The Misfits. He earned an Academy Award nomination for his 15-minute cameo in Judgment at Nuremberg. But no one could help but to compare the new Monty unfavorably to the old Monty, Monty included. In 1961, Peter Bogdanovich was working at the New Yorker Revival Theater in Manhattan, and Monty came in one afternoon to watch one of his pre-crash films, I Confess, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Bogdanovich stood at the back of the theater, watching Clift watching himself on screen. Halfway through the movie, Monty stood up and walked to the back of the theater, weaving down the aisle. He stood by Bogdanovich and lit a cigarette. Bogdanovich introduced himself, told Monty that he liked the picture. He asked Monty if he liked the picture. It's hard, you know? Monty said. It's very hard. He suffered from cataracts, a hernia, varicose veins. 
Between his drinking, his memory lapse, and vision problems, he was blamed for egregious delays during the making of John Huston's Freud, and after a couple of lawsuits, was deemed uninsurable, and thus unemployable. Meanwhile, Liz had hooked up with Richard Burden on the Rome set of Cleopatra. Monty's old friend, Bessie May, had instantly become the most famous, adulterous woman in the world. In 1964, Burden and Taylor moved to New York so that Richard could star in Hamlet on Broadway. Liz reached out to Monty, tried to include him in her social life. By this point, most of his Hollywood friends of old had dropped him, so Monty was beyond grateful for Liz's kindness. He loved Liz too much to tell her that he thought Burden was a phony. It was clear that the affection was mutual. One night at dinner, Burden said, Monty, Elizabeth likes me but she loves you. Liz knew Monty was in bad shape. She truly believed that if he didn't get back to work, he'd die. She wanted him to star with her in Reflections and a Golden Eye, and she convinced producer Ray Stark that she'd pay for Monty's insurance bond herself. But the movie kept getting delayed. By 1966, when he made his last movie, The Defector, Monty hadn't worked in five years. On July 23, 1966, Montgomery Clift's body was found in his bedroom. The official cause of death was heart disease. The Hollywood legend version of the story is that Monty Clift died 10 years earlier in a bloody, mangled heap in Elizabeth Taylor's arms. When Monty died, Liz was in Rome with Richard shooting Franco Zeffirelli's The Taming of the Shrew. She wouldn't leave the set to go to the funeral, instead sending heaps of white chrysanthemums. She insisted that the shoot go on. But the day of the funeral, she was useless, hysteric in tears. Monty may or may not have been Liz Taylor's first love or longest love. Maybe their love was never romantic at all. Maybe, as in the greatest film they made together, and maybe the greatest film either of them made, Their mutual beauty made us want to see a purity in their love that wasn't really there. Or maybe, in the language of Hollywood myth, their inability to live happily ever after together is, actually, the most bittersweet romantic thing of all. In any case, with its gorgeous facade masking total dysfunction, it was very 1950s. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. You Must Remember This is written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. Today's special guest was Kent Kincannon, who played Montgomery Clift. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at youmustrememberthispodcast.com. And please follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. We'll be back next week with another tale from The Secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night.